Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. All right, um, for those of you who are interested in these kind of things, uh, I thought I'd take, since we're in Habakkuk, and Habakkuk is a minor prophet. And there are all these prophets in the end of the Old Testament, starting with, I believe, Isaiah, all the way through to Malachi, the only Italian prophet we have in the Bible. Comes from, where are you from? Razuzi or someplace like that. <laughs> but anyway, how do these all fit? Long, many, many years ago, uh, somebody shared this with me, and it was just helpful. So I want you to see... Two major dates every believer must remember and sort of clump things around. Two major dates from the Old Testament times of the prophets. And those dates are 722 B.C. when the Assyrians came in and took the northern tribes captive, the ten northern tribes which were known as Israel. And then 722 B.C., and then the next one is 586 B.C. when the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, came in and totally demolished everything in Jerusalem except some really big stones and uh, took the southern kingdom into captivity known as Judah. And uh, so those are the two dates that you have to keep in your mind as you read the prophets especially, even going through Kings and Chronicles, but for the prophets. Now, where do the prophets fit? into those two major dates, 722 B.C., Assyria, northern tribes, 586, Babylon, southern tribes. Where do these prophets fit? And I want to give you a, a code. This is a Bible code. Secret. Remember, three, two, three. Just remember that. Three, two, three. Are you ready? Something's not working. Wouldn't you know it? Here I am, ready to blast off into... There we are, there we are, there we are. Okay, so here we go. Now, this, this is how you're going to remember this stuff. Um, all the prophets are up here on this board right now, on this screen. And you'll notice there's three here, there's two here, and there's three here. Three, two, three. These all break down into... In relation to the exiles, the different exiles. So the, two, the three northern prophets, prophets to the north, to Israel, are Hosea, Amos, and Jonah. Now, if you want even a deeper code, okay, a secret, it's Hosea, Amos, Jonah. So you, go, you, you all know Amos, let's see Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. You, you know that, right? Okay, so it's the Hosea, skip one, Amos, skip one, Jonah. I've already overloaded you, but that's okay. You can take it because you're going to have a test on this. So Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. All right? That's pre-exilic north. Those three men God used to preach to the northern kingdom. Let's jump and skip the pre-exilic south. Then we go to the exilic prophets, but it's the 
Babylonian exile, and that was Ezekiel and Daniel. And you remember that. Ezekiel was on the river Kabar, I think it was, and he saw these visions and everything. He's over there in, Babel, in Babylon. He's over there. And, of course, Daniel's over there. And so you have two exilic prophets. Two exilic prophets. Then you have, and, of course, uh, Cyrus the Persian had the Jews come back to the land. Remember Nehemiah and Ezra and so on. There are three post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Now, where do these guys all fit in? These are all the rest. You got three, two, three. Then you have all the rest. And all of these prophesied sometime between around here and here. Some of them, Isaiah, they're all in the south, okay? They're all, they're all functioning in the southern kingdom, all of them. But Isaiah preached to the northern kingdom before they went into exile. He lived before 722, so that's how he could preach to the northern. And he's the one that talked about Assyria coming and God's going to... <laughs> And whistle for Assyria to come down. I think that's maybe in chapter 4 or 5 or something like that. We really ought to study Isaiah sometime. Oh, yeah. And we also ought to study Zechariah. And, and also Daniel. Uh, but then most of these... Now, I believe it was Amos. He was a fig picker. Remember him? And I think he, from the south, also went up. I may be wrong on that. You'd have to look at the beginnings of your... But anyway, so... There are the prophets. Now, we're, it, we're, we're right here in Habakkuk. Habakkuk is prophesying right around this time. He's right toward the end of the, uh, just before the Babylonian captivity because, of course, God has shown him that the Babylonians are coming and they're coming and they're coming and he doesn't understand why. Why are they coming? Why are they coming? Because they're wicked and we're pretty wicked, but we're not as wicked as they are. They're wickeder than we are. That's Hosea's problem there. He can't figure this out. So that takes us to our study this morning, and that is how to rejoice in tribulations. Sounds like a pretty common thing. But I'll tell you what. If you heard helicopters coming and you heard planes landing and tanks rolling out and clicketing down the road and, and people were being slaughtered in your presence, uh, you'd be wondering too, why is this happening? What is happening here? We don't, what, God, what is going on? That's what's happening with Habakkuk. These incredibly wicked Habakkuk, uh, Chaldeans are strong. They, they are strong and they've got horses and they're galloping down and they're killing everybody in sight and so on. And Habakkuk is wondering why is this all going on. And uh, so it's a big trial. It's a huge trial. By the way, remember 9-11? Remember 9-11? Obviously, everybody remembers 9-11. How, how, how spiritual we all got at 9-11. You know, that lasted for about a month. And then we're just back to the old stuff again. Uh, that just shows you that external religion doesn't do anything to the heart. God needs to change the heart. But um, that was horrible. So when you stand in Habakkuk's sandals, I think this might be on your handout. I'm not sure. Yes, it is. If you, if you, when you stand in Habakkuk's sandals, how will you handle life? How will you handle really 
hard things. And Habakkuk is, here is how a man or woman truly lives by faith. Not a lot different than Job. You remember Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Easy to say. Hard to live. And yet, God calls us to that. Warren Wiersbe says, especially chapter 3 now, that this is one of the greatest confessions of faith found anywhere in the Scripture. So, let's just think about Habakkuk real quick. Um, he began with that heart-wrenching question, why? He felt God wasn't listening to him. He was letting God's enemies get away with murder. He didn't care about his chosen people. Um, Israel, of course, was God's chosen people, and now all this has changed. But now, having worked through that in chapter 1 and 2, he went up on a tower and he watched, you know, the just shall live by faith. He, God assured him, hey, their judgment is coming. Don't, you just hang in there. Don't worry. Live by faith. Uh, Beaufort talked about living by faith back there. Now Habakkuk knows God is using the Chaldeans as a rod of discipline, as a rod of discipline and judgment. In chapter 2, and I've already said this, God says the godly man will live by faith, not by reason or sight. Trusting God, come what may. Now, we come to Habakkuk chapter 3. Verses, um, we're going to start in verse 3, although he prayed in verses 1 and 2, a, a wonderful prayer. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. We should be praying the same thing in the midst of the years. Make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. We deserve wrath. Lord, give us mercy. Sometimes Christians go through hardships, they'll harden their hearts and demand, if your God is so great, why doesn't he change things for me? Why doesn't he bring my partner back? Why doesn't he heal my child? Surely God doesn't want me to go through this. Surely God wants me to be without, live without this pain. He wants me to be happy. Why doesn't he answer my prayers? I deserve better than all of this. Well, Habakkuk uh, answers those kinds of questions by trusting in God. So, Here's how to rejoice in the worst of circumstances. First of all, verses 3 and 4 start with the dazzling and power of God. And this morning, I'm going to be reading through each passage here as we go through this last chapter in Habakkuk. So verses 3 and 4, and, and let me say this right up front. Verses 3 down to um, 12... 13, 14, 15, verses 3 to 15, is highly poetic. It's highly poetic. I don't know what every part of it really is referring to. Apparently Habakkuk did, and maybe not. God inspired him to write it. It's highly poetic, but what it does, in a nutshell, it communicates that our God is a victorious warrior God who's Enemies will be defeated. That's what the whole, pray, the whole psalm here or this prayer is about. Our glorious God. And so we start out with the dazzling and power of God. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens. And the earth is full of His praise. His radiance is like the sunlight 
his rays flashing from his hand, and there is, and there is the hiding of his power. This is God pictured as probably coming historically for Habakkuk from the Sinai area. Probably God, poetically speaking, is marching from the Sinai area as Israel's true and living and great God, who's also our God. Never forget that, no matter who our enemies are. He is the true and great God. No enemy is too big for Israel's God. And you want to notice all the descriptions of God and his attributes in those, three ver in those two verses. His splendor, his splendor covers the heavens. The earth is full of his praise. And it is right now. The earth is full of his praise. Even though the world doesn't recognize it, they're living in the midst of all the glorious creation of God that gives praise to him. His radiance is like the sunlight. He is brilliant in his glory, dazzling in his glory. And he has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. That's a poetic way of saying that his hands are omnipotent. His hands, they're like rays flashing. I mean, it, it's just incredible language here to describe the power and glory and majesty of God. And so when you think about Habakkuk 1 and 2 and Habakkuk's concern, why are these things happening? God, did you forget about it? Yada, yada, yada. No. Here he is, this warrior God who is marching from Sinai historically. Oh, let me, let me say this. In this kind of a psalm or prayer or poem in the Old Testament, there are hints of eschatology here. There are hints of the second coming, of the second coming in judgment and wrath and power like Re uh, Revelation 19. Christ is coming and a sword is out going out of his mouth. He is coming to judge the earth. And we even, I even think he refers uh, to maybe the Antichrist later on. And, God is, and Christ is going to come, and he is God. He's going to come, and he is going to exert his righteous, wrathful power in this world against all of his enemies who are also his people's enemies. Number two, remember God's great saving work for his people throughout history. Throughout history, and I'm going to read through that, but just some comments here. What God has done for Israel, what God has done for the church through the last 2,000 years, all of this is for our encouragement. What has God done? Well, for Habakkuk, God is going to judge those Babylonians, and God, after Habakkuk is long gone, long dead, God is going to bring Israel back to the promised land. They're going to build a temple again, Ezra and Nehemiah. So God's going to do great things. But it's important to remember God's saving work for his people uh, throughout history. Warren Wearsby talks about how the Psalms so often rehearse Israel's history. Jewish people, the, the Old Testament, especially believing Jewish people, not all of them were believers, but they rehearsed the works of God for Israel from the 
Exodus, God taking the children of Israel through that Red Sea, all, all God. It's all God. They, they just stood and watched and then fed them in the wilderness and brought them through the Jer Jericho, uh, Jordan River, remember? I mean, conquered Jericho. I mean, all God and the children of Israel reviewed this constantly. Remember Stephen's message in Acts chapter 7, I think it is? What does he do? He rehearses the great work of God. And in doing that, he shows them how they were unbelievers. But we should do the same. Let me put a plug in here for church history. God's people, we, we've taught church history several times. We're going to do it again. But church, God's people should have a, at least a semblance of knowledge of what happened after Jesus left. What happened after the last apostle left? What did God do? What did the church do? Some really stupid things is what the church did, <laughs> especially when it joined up with the state under Constantine, and that was the worst thing that could have ever happened. But, and then you follow it. You track through the Middle Ages, and you, and you have the Roman Catholic Church taking over, and you have these little... I mean, see, I could go on and on because I love church history. I'm reading a little book right now by a fellow from Southern Seminary, Tim, Timothy Paul, Paul Jones, his name is, and it's a church history for beginners. I'm always a beginner, and he's just tracking these people, and all the way up through the Reformation, through the Puritan era, down, what is God doing here? Right up to, what's the date today? Is it November? It's October. October. Thank you. Thank you. Should keep all this in mind. So... But, 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 just as God marched with Israel through those Old Testament times, by the way, you just read, if you're reading through, you read, I believe it was yesterday, how the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians. The Israelites didn't do that. Did you get that back in Isaiah? It's also referred to in... Second Kings, I guess, or First Kings, one of the two. But just amazing what God has done. So let's follow him here. We're going to go rather quickly. Uh, I don't want to miss the last points of this uh, talk this morning. But here we go. Here we go. Uh, we're starting verse 5. I'll make a few comments perhaps here as we go. Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. Now, if you survey the earth, you've got control over the earth. That's the sovereignty of God right there when it says he surveyed the earth. Yeah, no demon can survey the earth. No human can really survey the earth, not in the same way that God does. Even though we got satellites up there and we have satellite pictures, we're talking about he surveys the earth and all the people in it and all the hearts of all the people in it. That's beautiful. That is just beautiful. He looked and he startled the nations. Yes, he is going to startle the nations, I guarantee you. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. Poetic, poetic. His ways are everlasting. Those mountains and hills, everything permanent, immovable, mighty, almighty earthly power crumbles before this God of Israel and the God of the, of the church, our, our God. Seven, I saw the tents of Cushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. God's enemies suddenly realized they have to deal with a wrathful God. Remember, the, the, the Chaldeans came marching from Babylon over they went, the fertile croissant. 
down into Palestine. What did they do? They were slaughtering everybody and they were mocking every god as they came along and blaspheming every god there is. These guys were absolutely arrogant. And what this psalm says is they're going to be reduced to, to crumbs. What does it say? Uh, distress, trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses? Oh, I love that picture. Have you ever seen a herd of horses running? Imagine like 10,000 horses just running, galloping, and the thunder that that would create. Oh, my goodness. God is riding his horses. He's like a big horseman. He's, he's riding his horses in judgment. That's the picture here. You rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation, coming to save Israel. He opened the Red Sea to let Israel out of Egypt, and the Jordan opened to let them into Canaan. Verse 9, your bow was made bare, the rods of chastisement were sworn. Selah, you cleaved the earth with rivers, possibly looking for when God took Israel into the promised land. He crushed all his, their enemies, or at least most of them, the ones that the Israelites were willing to fight. He marches in victory. Verse 10, the mountains saw you and quaked. This is great. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of waters swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. That's talking about the ocean. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. That's talking about waves. That's talking about like tsunami type waves. They lifted high, the deep lifted high its hands. So all creation seems to quake in deepest fear. Mountains here are writhing in terror. Oceans heave in horror. Verse 11, sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. Everything flees before the coming of God, coming to judge the earth. Now, uh, let me see here. No, okay. Uh, verses 12 through 15. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointing. Notice that. All the enemies, but God's going forth for the salvation of his people. You struck the head of the house of the evil. Oh, that could be a reference future to Antichrist. Who knows? To, to lay him open from thigh to neck. You know, God, Christ, when Christ comes back, you know what he does with the Antichrist? Throws him into the lake of fire. The Antichrist and the false prophet get to swim in the lake of fire a thousand years before everybody else that's going there gets to be there. Because you get to the end of chapter 20 of Revelation and they're already there. Those two people, the Antichrist, and it's Christ who does that. He sends them there. Uh, let's see here. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses. Once again, there is God riding his horses on the surge of many waters. And so I just love in these verses, verses 12 through 15, one of the commentators I read pointed this out, and I think it's great. Just what, what God does here. You marched, you trampled, you went forth, 
you struck, you pierced, and you trampled. Six declarations of God's victorious power over his enemies. Now, that's the end of the description of God in his judgment coming as the great, almighty, powerful warrior God. Now, what does Habakkuk do now? After he has read this or heard this or wrote this or whatever, however that came, what does he do? Four things. When, when all you have is God, when all you have is God, you don't have anything else. All you have is God. Here's Habakkuk. He, he is seeing himself in the midst of a nation, Israel, that has been desolated by the enemy. And all you have now to lean on is not your nation, not you only have God. Let's see what he says. Number one, trust God knowing that there are some things you simply can't change. Verse 16, I heard and my inward parts trembled at the sound. My lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Now we're back to the Chaldeans and they're coming. And what can Habakkuk do? Nothing but trust in God. There are some things you simply can't change. And that, that's true in our lives. There are things that come into our lives. You know, it, it, cancer, why doesn't God get rid of it? You can't change it. Habakkuk is filled with dread at what is coming here. Notice, he's real. I'd be, I'd be quaking knowing this is coming. These butchers. Imagine if you were in Poland in 1938-940. Imagine. He's filled with dread at what is coming. His belly is quaking. No Pollyanna here. No whistling in the dark. He is quaking. His belly is quaking. My inward parts trembled. And the reality is that some things God brings into our lives literally make us sick to our stomachs. A sudden accident that snatches away a loved mother. A child who rejects everything you stand for. And you just can't change it. We don't know what God's providence has written for our days. We don't know what tomorrow will bring or next year. Or the way things are heating up in our nation. Where are we going to end up here? Where is this going to go? I can guarantee you that there's no silver bullet for our days. Sad but true. His bones ache. I'm sure he had sleepless nights. Have you had any sleepless nights lately? You just can't get to sleep. He could hardly stand up. He was so full of trembling. But he embraces all the calamities he can imagine, and yet he triumphs over them through faith in his sovereign Savior, loving Savior. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. He can't rejoice in his circumstances. But he can rejoice in his God and wait quietly. 
We don't know what God's going to bring. Here's a story from John Piper's book, The Pleasures of God, on December 16th, 1974. God did not save John Piper's mother's life. She and John's dad were headed for Bethlehem in Israel on a tour bus. A van with lumber tied on the roof coming the opposite direction slammed head-on into the bus. The lumber crashed through the window, struck his mother in the head, and killed her instantly. What was John's comfort? For 28 years, he had the best mom imaginable. She was now with her Savior. He had lots of good memories. And he writes this, quote, And underneath all these comforts, supporting all my unanswered questions and calming my heart, there was the confidence that God is in control and God is good. I took no comfort from the prospect that God could not control the flight of a 4 by 4 piece of lumber. God is sovereign. We're going to end this morning with that, with, with the fact that God is sovereign. Number two, four key truths to end up standing with Habakkuk. Trust God for what he is, not for what you get from him. Verse 17, and this, of course, is classic. For, for though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. All earthly sustenance is wiped out. The enemy has stripped the land. Everything that represents health, peace, good times, rest, joy, sweetness, gone. From figs to grapes to olives to bread to sheep to meat. Gone. How temporary all this stuff is in this life. Imagine, imagine. I can't imagine, but imagine. <laughs> imagine if all of a sudden everything you possess is taken from you. Your house, your car, your job, your, your savings, even your family. And you're alone. Imagine. How could you possibly handle that? You know? You have God. You have God. We have to remember that. We have to remember that. This is what it means to live by faith. Not feeling good about, what God, about God when everything's going your way. Your stocks are climbing. Your sales are shooting off the chart. Your hot water heater is working. Give thanks to God, but about, what about when you got nothing? What about when you come down with a life-threatening disease? Or what about when you have to sell out to pay off the creditors? Now we find out who our God really is. Is it what we get from Him, or is it God Himself? And that's easy for me to say, but that's what trials show. Here's another story. Jonathan Edwards died from a smallpox vaccination at 55 years of age in 1758, upon hearing of her husband's bizarre death, his wife Sarah wrote to their daughter Esther, quote, My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. 
Oh, that we may kiss the rod. Kiss the rod. This is a woman with theology in her soul. And lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore His goodness that we had Him for so long. But my God lives and He has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. Trust God for who He is, not for what He gives you. You're thankful for what He gives you, but your trust is not in those things but in God. Third, I believe it is, trust God, finding Him to be everything your heart needs for time and eternity. Verse 18. Notice the first word of verse 18. Yet. That is an important word. There are three words like that. Yet, but, and nevertheless. Here's the situation, yet. Here's the situation, but. Often, but God. Here's the situation, nevertheless. And we'll see that in Psalm 73. Yet, I will exult in the Lord... I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. No cattle in the stalls, verse 17, but I know the living God. It's like Habakkuk is standing right in the middle of all this devastation, all this barrenness, all earthly support has failed. It was all gone. And he cries out like a victorious warrior in battle. He says, yet I will exult in God. To exult means to jump for joy, to rejoice in triumph. If you thought these things could ruin me, if Satan thought he could get me to deny God, sounds like Job, right? You're wrong. You are flat wrong. Not only will I rejoice, says Habakkuk, but I will exult in God. I will jump for joy in God. I will shout for joy in God. Trust God, finding Him to be everything your heart needs for time and eternity. And then, I think this is the last one, trust God knowing that He gives you conquering grace for every trial in this world. Verse 19. Verse 19. The Lord God is my strength. And he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places for the choir director on my stringed instruments. A conclusion. Now this is good. Notice, the Lord God is my strength. It doesn't say the Lord God gives me strength, but rather, the, that's true, he, he does. They that wait upon the Lord shall regain gain new strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. That's true. But the sovereign Lord himself is my strength. You've got to walk with God to know that. I wish I knew that more. God is my strength, says Habakkuk. The word strength in that verse is a Hebrew word that means warrior-like strength, kahil. God wants us to know this. He has told us so many times we ought to believe him. 
when God is all you have, you may have nothing in yourself, but He is your strength. Second Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. That's what Habakkuk is saying here in an Old Testament way. When God is your strength and empowers you to handle trouble, he gets all the glory. And let me tell you, that's true about all of our Christian lives. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Who is sufficient for these things? Sandy taught Thursday. Are you sufficient for what you did there? Every preacher, every teacher ought to go to 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Who is sufficient for these things? My, great, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Your weakness. I certainly feel that. I certainly feel my weakness. And God can work through our weakness. He gives you conquering grace for every trial in this world. God is your sure confidence regardless of circumstances. Notice what he says there, and this is really interesting. I often wondered, and I did a little research on this. It says, and he has made my feet like hind's feet. I love that. Now, let's look at a couple of verses. Uh, I think I have one there uh, in your handout. Deuteronomy 32, 13. What does that mean? He has made us, what does it say? He had... Right, he has, he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Here's the thing. God's desire for us is to rise above the circumstances by faith and like a sure-footed deer, antelope, mountain goat, whatever you want, you've seen pictures of them, how they go up a, a, a steep... And they're sure-footed, and they get up there, and they thrive up there. That's where God wants us to live. He made us to live in high places, worshiping and praising Him. Sometimes He lets us go into the valleys, but only to see how much we need Him. And then He brings us back up, just like Isaiah, you read it this morning, Isaiah 40, 39. They that wait upon the Lord, 31, 21, 31, 31. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up just like these deer on high places. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not weary. They shall walk and not faint. Deuteronomy 32, 13. He made him ride on the high places of the earth. And he ate the produce of the field. He made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock. He made him ride on high places of the earth. I want to give you Isaiah 58, 14. I'm going to read this to you. Isaiah 58, 14. I think this is the right reference. Okay. Then you will take delight in the Lord. Habakkuk 
The Lord is my strength. You will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. What does Psalm 18.33 say? I'll look at that one. I think it says something similar. No. No, it doesn't. Wrong reference. 33, excuse me, I was at 23. Yes, he makes my feet like hinds feet, and he sets me upon my high places. What's he, what's he mean with that? He means regardless of the circumstances, regardless, we don't depend on the circumstances for our victory. We trust in God, and as we do, doesn't mean everything's going nicely. Oh, no, not at all. But he puts us up there, and this is the way I end this. God is your victory, and Jesus, walking on my high places, has the idea of experiencing victory over all the powers that are against you. Praise God. God is greater than any of our enemies. Romans chapter 8 assures us of that. Um, and that's exactly what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. God leads us forth in victory in Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.14. God always leads us in triumph in Christ. And uh, this is Habakkuk's final victory cry. This is it. His circumstances drew him closer and closer to his Lord. God will fulfill his promises to his people. And through Jesus Christ... We will conquer every enemy of our soul. Every enemy of our soul. And before you know it, uh, probably within the next hundred years, it's not very long, but probably within the next hundred years, you'll be sitting in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, praising and glorifying His grace forever. Trust in God. His Habakkuk's fear turned to faith. I was visiting with a lady recently, and um, we were talking about trusting God, and I just came up with this acrostic. I jotted it down. I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. I like it. Trust. God is in control. You're not. Rest. God is in control. You're not. Unload your burden. God is in control. You're not. Are you in control? No. No, you're not. Submit. God is in control. You're not. Be thankful. God is in control. You're not. <laughs> you and I would make a, make a mess of this situation. All right, we got a couple minutes. Any thoughts? Any experiences that you had that took you up on the high mountains? Anybody? If not, we're going to close it up. Yes, Marilyn? No, no, it's not an experience, but what I liked about that, what I see in my mind is that you become sure-footed, like those deer up there. Very good. Sure-footed in the Lord. You're taken away from the circumstances, and God becomes your footing. Becomes God becomes your footing. I like that. You're sure-footed in God, not in your circumstances. Because you're going to be quaking and shivering and shaking and slipping and sliding all over the place. But we've got now, you know, somebody says, well, that's all fine and dandy, but I got this problem to deal with. Yes, you do. We all do.
as Lady Lisa Gallant famously has said, listen, we all have issues. Don't think yours is the only one. We all have issues. Is that right? No. We like to grumble. We like down here to grumble and complain. And that's, that's why I think it says Habakkuk put his hand over his mouth. Quit your complaining. Quit your griping. And start trusting God. All right. Any other thoughts? All right. Let's pray. Father, you are this incredible God, the creator of the universe, this glorious and great living and true God, and you are this personal God showing yourself to us in Jesus, showing your victory over all of our enemies through the resurrection from the dead, showing us that you go with us through the trials. Sometimes your providence brings about things that we just frankly would rather not go through, but you're good. Your plan is good. Your plan is right. Help us to trust you, rest in you, unload our burdens, submit to you, and Lord, forgive us for all of our griping and complaining and be thankful to you for who you are. We want to worship you and you alone, not just the things we get from you, but you and you alone. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen.